So last week, I somehow managed to skip an entire, an entire chapter, if you recall. Um, but we got ourselves back on track at the beginning of chapter 22. And we went a little ways into 22, so we'll pick back up there. Yes, at, at verse 13, of course, we'll have to get some of the context. But before we do that, let's have an invocation and pray the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We are wrapping up the sad tale of Ahab. And of course, we've seen Ahab as king do three great evils. And the first is bringing in idolatry. The second is sparing um, that enemy of God that God would not have spared, showing mercy where God would not have mercy. And then the third, of course, is the business with Naboth. And so all of these really indicative of his reign. Idolatry, pragmatism over faithfulness, trusting in princes instead of in God. And then uh, last but not least, his abuse of the poor and the helpless. And we see that Jezebel is instrumental through all of this, uh, but Ahab certainly goes along with it. And now we come to kind of the final conclusion of Ahab's sad story, Ahab and the false prophets. Now, what we've seen is that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, is Ahab wants to go to war with the king of Syria. He calls for his prophets, and all his prophets say, uh, yes, the Lord, the Lord says, go, you're going to have victory. You know, and a, a very astute question was asked, kind of about the epistemology. How do you know the truth? How do you know the facts when all of these guys are saying the Lord says, and in fact, he hasn't? I read, it, I read it through it again, maybe a couple more times, with that question in mind, and I, I found something rather interesting. It's obvious there, I just hadn't picked up on it. If you look at uh, verse 6 of chapter 22, Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Which is obviously, contextually, that's obviously the answer he wants to hear. But look what he says next. Or rather what Jehoshaphat says. So, of course, Ahab is the king in the north, Jehoshaphat in the south. Jehoshaphat's the king of Judah. Look what Jehoshaphat says. Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Why would he, why would he ask that? Is there not a second opinion? Because he knows they're all sycophants. And he knows that it's not really coming from the Lord. It's just, so the circumstances themselves indicate to a man uh, such as Jehoshaphat that, hey, this isn't actually coming from the Lord here. Okay, so that gives us, you know, some indicator of how it is that they were able to, to fetch out the truth of these these false prophets and their false claims. Okay, so then this name Micaiah is brought up. And, of course, it's uh, brought up verse 8. 
the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. <laughs> so there, I, there's so much irony here. Frankly, throughout, I, I kind of missed it my first time through, to be honest with you. Um, there is just so much irony here in, in the 22nd chapter, in the final chapter of uh, what we call First Kings. So this is one of the great ironies. Like, what do you expect a prophet to do? Only say good things about you or tell you the truth, right? Flatter you or, or tell you objective fact. Interestingly, he knows. He knows. So, so Jehoshaphat brings up this objection. Hey, these guys are all biased, is in fact, you know, the idea here. Is there not another prophet of the Lord? And who but... Ahab himself acknowledges, yeah, they're biased. There's another guy. We should probably inquire of him. He's objective, but I just hate his objectivity. He's always saying bad things about me. So again, there's just so much irony because even Ahab acknowledges that Micaiah speaks the truth. It's just truth he doesn't like to hear. All right. Then verse 9, then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, made for himself horns of iron. Remember this? Very dramatic. Made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And of course this is deeply funny and, I and ironic because... Well, I already read ahead for us. It doesn't go this way. So, you know, more shenanigans by Zedekiah, the false prophet. And his, uh, his iron horns. Interesting, too, just because of what's going to come up with, with Baal. And Baal sometimes being depicted as a, as a golden calf or as a, as a horned god. Um, I wonder if that's not what's going on here, too. Uh, this, this reference to Baal, this reference to the golden calf, the horns of iron. Who knows? I commend that to you. Verse 12, then, And all the prophets prophesied so, and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. All right, and we had covered that ground last week. I simply wanted to bring us back up to speed and give a little more detail there in that section. All right, so yeah, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 13 is where we are right now. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Is that the goal of a prophet? No, the goal of the prophet would be to tell the truth. So, so this, is, this is just dripping with, with its own kind of irony. The words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. They could all tell which way the king wanted them to go, and they were all favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. They've all said yes. You should say yes too. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. 
So here's a stereotype of a true prophet and a false. All the false prophets are, hey, what, is, what does this guy want to hear? That's what we're going to say. What's the true prophet say? I'm not going to say yes or no. What does the Lord say? And then we'll give the Lord's word. So you can see the difference here. Uh, the false prophets serve, serve the king, serve man. And Micaiah, this true prophet, serves the Lord. And thus honestly serves man. By serving the Lord and speaking that truth, he truly serves man. Okay, verse 15. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, this is where context tells you what's going on. See what comes next, and then we'll revisit this. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? What, what kind of answer? What kind of answer did Micaiah give him, do you think? Sarcastic. Yeah, this is a sarcastic answer. We have to gain, gain the tone from the context. But he already knows, Micaiah already is going in there, knowing that the king wants this, all his 400 yes-men are telling him he wants this, then the king's saying, hey, what do you say? And so he very sarcastically, very apingly says, oh yeah, why don't you go up? You know, you don't really want my opinion. You want me to fall in line with you, your will, and the will of your 400 false prophets. And so the sarcasm is obviously detected <laughs> by Ahab. And thus Ahab responds, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Okay, then, then comes the truth. After the, the gig is up, the sarcasm has, has served its purpose. Verse 17, And he, that is Micaiah, said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. Now, that is worth pointing out because our Lord says something very similar, doesn't he? As, as he's going into the garden to be struck, um, that the, the shepherd will be struck. So it's fascinating because even, even in this anti-king, this anti-anointed one, this anti-Christ, we see a type of the true Christ. So Micaiah sees sees the death of Ahab and the scattering of Israel, this false Christ. And yet in that false Christ, we can see a picture of the true Christ, how our Lord Jesus Christ, the one true Christ, the one true King, is struck and the sheep are scattered temporarily until he rises again and draws them back to himself. So um, the vision that, that Mike, Micaiah sees is that all Israel is scattered on the mountains as sheep who have no shepherd. That's ominous for Ahab because he is the shepherd. This, by the way, too, sheds, sheds some light on um, Psalm 23 and the whole shepherd motif. Uh, it's a little bit chicken and the egg here in terms of shepherd, king, king, shepherd. But Suffice it to say, it is, it, it, it's, very, it's very worthwhile to consider this in light of David, who is the shepherd of God's people, in Psalm 23 saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Effectively saying, the Lord is my king. Though I am the king of all, the Lord is my king, the Lord is my shepherd. So this, 
this language of shepherd and king you can see in a, in a section like this, how those are used interchangeably. And it's well worth just keeping that in mind in terms of our biblical vocabulary and the way we think of things. Okay, so that's, um, that's the first half of verse 17, and then the second half we get what the Lord says. And the Lord said, These have no master, that is, the sheep have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. So what is the, what is the prophecy and the vision here that Micaiah communicates to Ahab? Namely, that Ahab's going to be struck and all Israel's going to be scattered and returned to their homes. So, once again, he keeps his perfect streak of telling Ahab bad things. <laughs> bad news. All right, any, any thoughts, any questions on that? Everything okay? Fairly clear? What we get next is absolutely strange and fascinating and wonderful. Um, because we get, we get a glimpse into this very odd phenomena that we see from time to time in the background. And e indeed in some of the language and imagery that's used that otherwise remains rather abstract to us. Um, we get a vision and a, and a viewpoint into the heavenly council. This idea that, that Yahweh is reigning and yet he surrounds himself with created beings sometimes in the scriptures called small g gods, small s spirits, and that he governs with them and through them, this divine council. Now, there are glimpses of all of this, and, and one of the, probably the most popular scholar and accessible scholar that studies this kind of thing is a guy by the name of Michael Heiser. And if you look up Michael Heiser, you know, listen, like, have your filter on, because... All of this stuff gets a little wacky and a little wild and a little out there and a little speculative. But what, what, what he does serve to do is show that in biblical texts and in extra-biblical texts, there is the, these overlapping concepts around this divine council or this heavenly council through which God uh, rules immediately. You can see this in, um, well, here. In 2 Kings, or excuse me, 1 Kings, we're still in 1 Kings. You can see allusions to this in, in the Psalms, Psalm 82 and 89. You can see this in Job. Remember where the devil goes before God and they have this, they have this dialogue? Um, you can also see this in Revelation 12, uh, where, remember, the accuser of our brethren has been cast down, he who, could, he who accused them day and night. See, Satan had access to this Council. He was part of this council and could go before God and make accusation. With the death of Christ that makes atonement for all of our sins, the devil loses his ability to accuse us. And so when Christ ascends and is enthroned in heaven, this is the picture of Revelation 12, Satan, the accuser, is cast down. He can no longer accuse us. He loses his seat on the council. And of course then there's a rebellion and war in heaven and, and Satan and all of his political party are thrown down to the earth. So we glimpse these things in the scriptures, and, and here's one place we glimpse the heavenly council and the access prior to the Christ event, prior to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, the access of unclean spirits, of fallen angelic beings, into this council. You can see how revolutionary it is then when Christ is crucified 
rises and ascends because it changes the very nature and shape of this heavenly council. All right. Chapter 22, verse 19. And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Okay, so look again just at the obvious. It's a vision that Micaiah sees. The Lord is enthroned. The host of heaven, frequently the armies of heaven, but can be used uh, via synecdoche. I think that's the... Mm, I'm not certain of that, that that's the right term for this. But this host of heaven can also be seen as the commanders of heaven, the armies of heaven, represented by the commanders of heaven, standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab? that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead. Okay, so very interesting, because the Lord is engaged in counsel. He's asking a question. Do we have any volunteers? How are we going to make this happen? So the Lord is governing in counsel. He's not just simply dictating from on high. Now, he has set the terms, to be sure. Uh, He envisions Ahab Uh, falling at Ramoth-Gilead. Now look at this. Look what comes next at the latter half of verse 20. Just fascinating. And one said one thing and another said another. There's a discussion. It's like a church council meeting. There's, There's a back and forth. There are different ideas being expressed in the midst of the heavenly council. It's absolutely fascinating. Verse 21. Then a spirit came forward. Here it helps us to understand our, our, that um, you know, angels is the office and spirits are what an angel is. You know, I, I am a human being. I happen to be a husband, a father, a, a pastor. These are my vocations. These are the offices I hold. But what am I? I am a human being. Angel is an office. It's a messenger of God. But what is an angel? An angel is a spirit. So we don't need to get off on the wrong foot here when we read the word spirit. This is is an angel. We could use that interchangeably. Then A spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, we know that God is true. And this spirit wants to be a liar. Who is the father of all lies? Satan. And so you can tell right off the bat that this is a fallen angel. Yeah, this is a fallen angel. A good and true angel isn't going to say, hey, let me go out and lie and deceive. So what we have here is an angel, uh, an evil angel, a fallen angel, uh, working in accord with God's plan and in accordance with God's permission. A similar kind of permission is given Satan um, by God 
when he wants to test Job. He wants to do an evil thing. God permits that and uses that evil ministry to his own good purpose. And so this is a very similar, a very parallel kind of uh, episode. Let me just finish this section. We'll drop down to the study notes and we can get a little bit of the fuller biblical context. So God hears this proposal and agrees. Verse 22, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. I mean, there's God effectively granting the, the ability. Go out and do so. Verse 23, now therefore behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. All right, so then effectively in terms of narrative, what Micaiah has revealed is that this counsel of God took place before Ahab ever even went to his prophets and said, should we go up? This counsel of God took place. This lying spirit went and filled the mouths of these 400 prophets so that when Ahab came and said, should we do this? They all said, yes, the Lord says so. They were all lying. I mean, that's, this is sinful. This is a very plainly, not only is it sort of like Eighth Commandment uh, deceit, um, but it's also very much Second Commandment deceit, misusing the name of the Lord your God. They're saying, yes, in the name of the Lord, go do this thing. And so this is where, again, you can't see this. I think it's impossible to see this as a good angel who's acting in a bad way, and somehow that's okay. Um, this is a fallen angel who's doing fallen stuff, and God is permitting him to do so for his own purposes, just as he permits Satan to go after Job for his own purposes. All right, if you drop down to um, the study note on uh, verses 20 through 22, in regard to the word entice, what Micaiah saw was a visionary portrayal of the fact that when people, quote, refuse to love the truth and, to, and so be saved, end quote, God, quote, sends them strong delusion, end quote, and that this quotation is from 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 11. So when, when people refuse to love the truth and be saved, then God sends them strong delusion. And uh, sure, sure, this could be a subspecies of that, the strong delusion in, this in the person of this fallen spirit. Um, likewise, then the study note says, see also the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We have a quotation from Martin Chemnitz from the 16th century, the devil is properly the father of lying, but because he can do nothing unless God permits, Job 1.12, 1 Kings 22.22, therefore God says in Ezekiel 14.9-10, I have deceived him, in order that we may recognize that false prophets are a punishment for contempt, stubbornness, and ingratitude towards the truth. Well, does that describe Ahab? Yeah, absolutely. He had, he had none less than, than Elijah as, as his own personal prophet, telling him all the things he was doing wrong. You have Mount Carmel, you have the slaying of the false prophets, you have all manner of, of indication that Ahab certainly should have heeded and turned to the Lord. He doesn't, and so God, God sends this. But, but, but in terms of... Uh, in terms Again, in terms of the narrative, 
Micaiah is telling him all of this. So what is Micaiah doing? The only reason all your false prophets have told you to is because there's a lying spirit behind it. I am telling you the truth from God. I am telling you the truth that God allowed all this to happen. I am telling you, why is he telling him the truth? So that he can be freed from the delusion and return to faithfulness to the Lord and finally turn things around. So this is one final, last, merciful appeal on the part of God through the prophet Micaiah to Ahab to turn, to repent, to relent, and uh, you know, to be spared this temporal consequence, but then also the eternal consequence of, of being separated from God. Okay, I saw a hand um, back there. Yes, please. So in the section right before this, that's headed Ahab's repentance. Mm -hmm, Is mm -hmm. that, does he not really repent then? That's a great question. So, of course, I think you're referring to chapter 21, uh, 25 and following. That seems to be a very genuine repentance, followed by a very genuine turning away from that repentance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that seems to be what's going on, what's going on here. Um, Pastor? Yes. I have a question, a comment and a question. Um, this is really new information for me. I, I, I didn't realize uh, this detail was there and how God governs through counsel and through spirits and uh, influences, behaviors. Does this explain that verse back in Exodus where God will harden the heart of Pharaoh? We, we never know the detail of how that happens, but here we have more... Uh, flesh on the explanation, so to speak. Mm -hmm. would, and I guess the question is, if that's true, is God still engaged in the same way in our current time, using spirits, both good and bad, uh, to influence our will and behaviors? Yeah, definitely. De I mean, definitely to both. Definitely to both. When, whenever, whenever God allows this, and then explicitly tells us that he's done so, yeah. it ought to give us pause. We ought to reflect very deeply on it. In the instance with Pharaoh, in the instance with Ahab, in the instance even with Job, albeit in a very different manner, um, we ought to, whenever God sort of pulls back the curtain and says, this is how it was, you know, we ought to, that's meant to draw us in and to draw our attention so that we meditate deeply on it. No doubt about this. And then, and then to answer your question, is this how the world? Is this how God continues to act and govern throughout the world? And there, the answer is yes. Is of course you can see this in Revelation. It's really assumed in Revelation. You can see all the different angels acting immediately, doing different things. You know, loosing the four winds, etc., um, pouring out the 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 incense, the the coals from the incense altar. You can see that everything that God does upon the earth is done immediately through angelic powers. Ephesians puts all of this as clear as any New Testament book does. It's more than it assumed it's explicitly stated. This is really the punch, too, of, uh, of, of putting on the, the full armor of God and realizing that we, 
wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness in the heavenly places. What you see uh, Paul refer to repeatedly in Ephesians is this structure, this hierarchical spiritual structure, and the, the ruler, you know, Satan, the ruler of the air, the ruler of this world, has his own sort of false undergovernment of angelic beings set up. And we would call these the principalities and powers of darkness. In some respect, even if it's, it's, even if it's only partially legitimate, I mean, say, say, the scriptures call Satan the ruler of this world. It's, it's, not, it's only partially legitimate. Of course, God is the true ruler of this world. But when Adam and Eve said, we'll listen to Satan rather than God, he becomes the effective God, the effective ruler of this world. He beca- by virtue of our sin, uh, we are bound to him and subjects of him. This is why Christ, for example, describes going into the strong man's house and binding him and then plundering his goods. You know. In a sense, we belong to the devil. Of course, the devil, that strong man, what Jesus doesn't tell us is the first part of the story, which is that he plunders us out of God's kingdom and then secures us in his stronghold and guards us, and then Christ comes and steals us back, effectively. So you have this, you have this rule of Satan, which has a certain kind of legitimacy to it, even though it's ultimately illegitimate, and then this hierarchy, the principalities and powers of darkness underneath that. And to one degree or another, these are operative and acknowledged as operative. doesn't mean that their legitimacy as such is, is recognized, it's just the fact of what is, you know. And you can see references to this throughout, uh, throughout Ephesians. Uh, you can even see references to this in Daniel. Um, remember the, where the nations and the angels involved in the nations and the fighting that's going on? There's much more than meets the eye. There's much more than meets the eye. It, I think we've, we, our, our worldview as opposed to St. Paul's would be very um, like deistic, I think. Where, uh, where God is somewhere up there and his angels are somewhere up there and everything that happens in human history and in politics and everything is just, is just human beings. We're very closely connected with this. In Paul's vision of the world, Daniel's vision of the world, Revelation's vision of the world, there's, there's this huge interrelationship. And what we do here on, on earth matters very much in that spiritual sphere. This is why our prayers matter. Our conduct matters. Our preaching of the gospel matters. And it has all kinds of effects in this spiritual realm of which we are unaware. And we kind of recoil from this idea because we don't know how to understand it. But remember, the, remember where Jesus, his disciples couldn't cast out the demon? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out with fasting and prayer. And we recoil from this because we have no category other than like some sort of meritorious thing, which is like, I, somehow Lutheranism devolved into only having that category and nothing else. Um, not original Lutheranism, God be praised. But yeah, this is, this is not a meritorious category. This is, this is Jesus acknowledging the spiritual dynamics at play and how this spiritual ordering or economy works. And, and yes, uh, there is this ordering and economy. There is this way in which we, we must relate to each other and the way in which this, the spirits in the spiritual realm must relate to each other.
You gl- of course you glimpse this in Daniel. You also glimpse this in the dispute over Moses' body. I think in recorded in Jude. It's recorded in Jude. Um, he would not bring a reviling, Michael would not bring a reviling accusation against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I mean, that shows, that shows the interplay and conduct of the spiritual powers. So there's, the, yeah, and there's all manner of diversity. As much as, as much as Revelation paints for us a diversity of angelic host, think of the diversity of life on earth, down from like the smallest little germs and bacteria and amoeba or whatever, all the way up to the complexest life forms, including at the crown of it all, humanity. Probably, probably by way of analogy, it would be really, and, I, and um, some of the medieval guys thought this way. Thomas Aquinas, I think, explicitly thought this way, that as many, as many species as there are on earth, there are that many species of, of angels. So when you think of the angelic life forms, in the same way there's this hierarchy of earthly life, there's this hierarchy of angelic life. Don't think of it exactly parallel. Think of it maybe as like the lowest angels or you know, something like human beings or um, a step or two above human beings. And then it goes all the way up from there, right? So there's this great diversity of angels. Then we can infer from that since, fall, since demons, unclean spirits, are simply fallen angels, that there's this great diversity amongst them as well. And if you pay really careful attention, not that it's a savory topic, but you can see some of that in the demonic encounters. You know, this, like, possessed by a demon in the singular versus possessed. Remember that guy who's possessed by legion? I mean, what is that? It's like a different species of bad angel. And you've got Satan, of course, being a a different species yet. So there's, this is why um, it's the principalities, the lordships, the offices, the principalities and powers of darkness. There's this hierarchy of darkness based on their ability and based on their own ordering and economy um, that we are, that we are wrestling against by way of our, according to Jesus, fasting, prayers, according to Paul, preaching of the gospel, the revelation of Jesus Christ, just as Peter says the angels desire to look into it. Why? I mean, the inference is that, like, the inference is that it's, prof- that what we preach and say and do is of profound value in their governance over this sphere and their own spheres, whatever that means. It's all tied together. It's all connected. So anyway, that was very long-winded. I'm sorry for that, but it's a fascinating area, and it's an area that we, uh, I think, particularly in the West, as of late, have lost track of, and we kind of have a mocking attitude towards our fathers in the faith, which is a big mistake, because they, many of them contemplated these kinds of things, and in so doing, revealed that they understood the scriptures more, more deeply, more accurately than we do. Yeah, so there's a great deal of dynamism. And you see, too, what is, what is very true about God. And probably, probably also somewhat why the devil th- thought or th- still thinks he has a chance against God is because God me- it works immediately and binds himself to this immediate working. I mean, it's certainly why Satan thought he could overcome Christ. It's because, you know, how is he going to overcome the Son of God in his majesty? He's not. But if the Son of God in his majesty becomes man, true man, subject to the limitations of man, maybe, maybe. So that's uh, 
I mean, I think it. Get, I think it at least it at least rings a little more true than just the sort of like, well, why does Satan, this creature, think that he can beat God, the uncreated? I mean, does he not have the brain of a? I mean, even even my even my little daughter, who's like six and like has, I mean, you know, little kids, they don't really get the abstract. She surely knows the difference between the the creator and the created. And we're going to say that Satan doesn't understand that. I don't know. That seems to me to be too superficial. Probably Satan's got a better understanding of God working immediately and thinks that, that that's where he can that's where he can win. But of course, he's wrong there too. God's God's strength is made perfect in weakness. That's probably the triumph over Satan, like spoken, because that, isn't that what the incarnation shows? I mean, God comes to defeat Satan as a baby. And of course, that's what the cross shows. God defeats Satan precisely, precisely by losing, he wins. Yeah. And so on and so forth. It's always, I mean, that goes then to the Old Testament typology of, of all the weak ways in which God wins. Um, really, being the, really being the way in which he defeats Satan. And on this, on this particular question of, okay, well, maybe I can, if you're going to bind yourself to work immediately, I can, I, then you've weakened yourself and I can best you that way. At to which God's answer is, my strength is made perfect in that weakness. Anyway, I digress. So if that's interesting to you, great. If not, I'm sorry for that. Uh, but we can, yes, please. I hope I can express this. Um, I, these We're talking here about a period, of, a point in history where we see a hardening of a heart and that kind of thing. I'm thinking, isn't this generally true in life overall? Without God's grace, left to our own devices, we just like in the depths of despair and oh yeah, and, and sinfulness. And and this is just showing showing us, even like with the Pharaoh, this is actually what's happening in in you know in a period of time, but it can happen over a whole lifetime. Hmm. Yeah, very true. I, I think, I think, I mean, your words caused me to reflect, and I'm just going to be able to paraphrase. I don't have it memorized, but that part in our baptism, that part in our baptismal liturgy, where we we are all under Satan's kingdom until God claims us as His own, and we don't even know it. We don't even know it, you know. But that's just our nature: is as fallen human beings, our parents. And, and here we always think too individualistically. Adam and Eve are us and we are them. We are all the same plant, you know, the same organic plant, one seed to another. We're all one. And when they fell, we all fell. And we're all in this predicament enslaved under, I mean, it's kind of like, well, what about my individualism? I mean, it's like if, if the root of a tree drinks in poison, the leaf at the top doesn't get to be like, but I'm an individual. This doesn't affect me, or this shouldn't affect me, or it's immoral for this to affect me. It's like, yeah, well, that's all kind of aside from the point. Um, the, the root drank in the poison, the whole tree from root to the whole of humanity and all its individual members is poisoned. And we all then, to, to change metaphors, we are, are all under the kingdom of Satan until God breaks in and claims us as his own, and he does this by driving out the unholy spirit through baptism, giving us new birth in the Holy Spirit, water and the Spirit. 
Okay, so a great glimpse into um, what we only know in part and can, can this side of heaven only ever know in part because the, scripture, um, the scriptures don't ever describe this like from start to finish. They just give us glimpses of what is. So chapter 22, verse 24, we move on then. And we recall, we, we see then the sense in which this entire... Ahab's claim is that Micaiah always says bad stuff to him. But look why, I, I mean, what is Micaiah's point? What is the Lord's point in revealing all of this to him? To give him opportunity, even now, to repent and turn away from this and to heed the prophet of the Lord, to heed the Lord himself. Verse 24, then Zedekiah, of course we met Zedekiah before. He's the false prophet running around with his iron horns. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chananah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek. That's interesting, isn't it? Because that, that, doesn't that remind you of our Lord being struck on the cheek after, he's, yeah, after he speaks what is true? He's struck on the cheek just as Micaiah here speaks what is true and is struck on the cheek. And then he says... How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? So look at the hubris. Look at the hubris of this statement. The, the Spirit of the Lord is my sole possession. Who are you? And of course, this is ironic. Who are you to think that you have taken him from me and that you are speaking the truth? And so he strikes him, and, and this statement is bitterly sarcastic slash ironic, whatever you want to say. The, the sense isn't, oh, you actually have the Spirit of the Lord and you're telling the truth. The Spirit is, who are you to think you have the Spirit? <laughs> All right. We have a little spirit, a little uh, pro prophetic battle going on here. Verse 25, And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. So he's, So look, this is... He says, not only are you going to know that I do, ha in fact, have the Spirit of the Lord, that I have, in fact, told you the truth um, by virtue of what happens to Ahab. You're going to know it by virtue of what happens to you when some great cataclysm strikes. He doesn't say what, um, such that uh, Zedekiah has to flee in, and hide in an in inner chamber. Verse 26, and the king of Israel said, seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, thus says the king, put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and wine until I come in peace. So, oh, sorry, bread and water. Sorry, bread and wine. Sacraments on the mind. Bread and water. Until I come in peace. Well, Micaiah's just told him, you're not going to return in peace. So what's he saying? I don't listen to Micaiah. I know what's actually going to happen. I'm going to return from this battle victorious and in peace, and that's when I'll deal with Micaiah. So until then, imprison him, give him bread and water. And Micaiah said, verse 28, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. So he lays it on the line. He just completely lays it on the line. Effectively, if, if I ever do see you again, then the Lord hasn't spoken through me, and I deserve death. So you'll be the least of my worries. All right, so who's right? Zedekiah, Zedekiah 
Ahab and the 400 or Micaiah. Verse 29, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat the king of Judah went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. I mean, <laughs> hey, thanks. <laughs> well, what's, okay, what's really the intent here? The intent isn't to you know, make his friend the target. So much as, it's fascinating, isn't it? He's hedging his bet. He's hedging his bet. I'm going to, just in case, just in case that Micaiah was right, I'm going to disguise myself, make myself less of a target. No one's going to come after me. All right, and latter half of verse 30, and the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. I, needless to say, in those, like you, you know, soldiers would target the kings because if you, again, if you strike the shepherd, the sheep are scattered. If you strike the commander or the king, and that still to this day, of course, goes on. It's, you know. Verse 31, now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. So you go right after the head. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. So some, somehow they, they realize either visually or on the basis, probably on the basis of what he cries out, um, that this isn't really the king. Verse 34, but a certain man drew his bow at random. I mean, such a strange expression. An anonymous man shoots his bow at random and struck the king of Israel, Ahab, between the scale armor and the breastplate. What are the chances? Some random guy with some random bow and arrow shoots a random shot and it hits the one random place that would be lethal. I mean, obviously, we see the hand of God all over this. Right between the, the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. Now that fulfills, that fulfills precisely um, verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his home in peace. So that's precisely what happens. Every man to his city, every man to his country. So the king died, verse 37, and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Remember the prophecy that the dogs would lick up the blood of Ahab and Jezebel. And you think, how on earth is that going to happen? Here we see it happen. God has his ways. He's not going to be deterred. And yeah, not only did the dogs lick up his blood, but the prostitutes washed themselves in it. 
according to the word that the Lord had spoken. I mean, this again, just showing the shame that befell his, I mean, royal blood now being in contact with prostitutes, with the unclean of the unclean. Um, the study note on verse 38 points this out in regard to the prostitutes. Ahab's blood tainted the water of the pool of Samaria where prostitutes customarily washed. I mean, kind of gross for them too, if you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> not recorded in Elijah's prophecy, this desecration of his blood added to the disgrace of his death. All right. Verse 39, Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the ivory house that he built, and the cities that he built. Why is this mentioned? This is, kind of, this is kind of, I think, fascinating. I, and I think it's indicative of one of the ways Jesus reads and understands the Old Testament, that regardless of, of uh, Baal or Dagon or Ashtar or wherever the case may be, at root and at base very frequently is mammon. The love of wealth, the love of money, the love of earthly success. And uh, here we see an allusion to that, that, you know, the ivory house and the cities he built, this was his earthly glory. But look at his, his earthly glory has come to pass even in earthly shame and eternal and everlasting shame. So yeah, mention of the ivory house, the cities that he built. Are these deeds, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. Well, let's just speed through these two sections. I know I accidentally made a mistake last week and, and read these, but just for the sake of it. So Jehoshaphat, obviously we've been introduced to already. He's in Judah in the south. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhi. We talked about the queen mother and that typology. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Um, is that good or bad? Uh, <laughs> I mean, in one sense, it's good. They're united. In another sense, who did he make peace with? Ahab. Uh, but overall, Joseph, good. And we, we talked, too, about kind of the theme of this section that, um, hey, even if you're a good king, you can only do so much. The high places remain, etc. Definitely, we could wax on about how that is... Uh, you know, the fragility of good is it's, all it takes is one thing and it like topples down to nothing. And then if you want to rebuild that back up to good, it takes forever. Isn't that a strange paradox? I think about that all the time, probably more than I should. Just how, just how everything gets destroyed in one second. But if you want to rebuild that, it takes decades. Okay. Um, verse 45, now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? From the land he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father Asa, especially abominable, the male cult prostitutes. 
Um, there was no king in Edom. A deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go out to Ophir for gold, but they did not go, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion-Geber. Then Ahaziah the son of Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Again, we talked through this before, so I don't want to do it again. Um, I think if you look at, like, what's this business with the ships and all of that, summed up nicely in the footnote, footnote 47 through 50, Jehoshaphat made frustrating efforts to regain territory and trade previously attained by Solomon. I mean, again, just sort of following that theme of what Solomon had, easily disappears, not easily retaken. It's that same kind of principle of good is really easy to destroy in a minute. To rebuild it takes forever. Okay, then um, back up north where we left off with Ahab. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab. And of course, it's not good to be the son of Ahab, not only because of your lineage, but because of what you yourself are going to do. Remember, because of Ahab's repentance, God relented on bringing an end to the line, but said that end of the line was going to come in the days of his son. And here is his son, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother, Ahab and Jezebel, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Remember, that made Israel to sin is apostasy via idolatry. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. All right. This is a, an artificial end because in its original creation, 1 Kings and 2 Kings are one. So you can see the, the, the chapters and the, the break here between books is all uh, artificial. It's not native to the text itself. So we probably do best to, to pay very little mind to it and simply move on directly. I see we've only got a few minutes left. Any questions or any comments remaining from what we just covered? If not, we can wade into 2 Kings. Mm -hmm. So as far as like the good kings and the bad kings? Yes. So is that, are they that within themselves or God makes them that way or? Oh yeah, I think uh, certainly, certainly um, God is not in any way, shape or form responsible for evil. So we have, we have no fingers to point except at Ahab and his son Ahaziah, for example. We can see where God gives them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, to avoid temporal consequence, to avoid eternal consequence. And very rarely, if ever, do they take him up on it. Sometimes they partially do, and God rewards partially, as with Ahab and his repentance and the the curse being passed down the line. Even in the context where the deceiving spirits, God allows the, the deceiving spirit to go and infiltrate the spirits of the prophets so that they lie. This is all set up so that 
Ahab will have yet one more opportunity to return and repent. Um, God's mercy is demonstrated through that. And of course, we could, I mean, we could go down the line. It's just, it gets too complex. It gets to be a topic in and of itself to talk about Pharaoh and the hardening of the heart or um, some of the others. But suffice it to say that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he's never, he's never been opposite of that. Not even, in, not even in a specific instance or two or three where God hardens or gives over or sends a lying spirit. The person has merited it and warranted it. And even still, sometimes God gives opportunity after that. Um, not always. But the culpability lies with the person, not with God. That's, that's what the scriptures tell us. I, this will all become manifest and obvious on the last day. We'll have no doubts about it. Um, so until then, we just we go with what the scriptures say. All right. Any other, any other questions, thoughts? We're right at, we're right at noon, so we'll, uh, we'll pause and... Um, Next week, pick up 2 Kings chapter 1. The Lord be with you.